Hey everybody, this is Brandon Marcello. Welcome to the College Football Daily. Thanks for joining us. Uh, today our guest is James Crepia. He uh, hosts a radio show out west, which no one listens to. He, <laughs> he also is the Oregon beat writer for the Argonian um, uh, out west. Longtime friend. We used to cover Auburn together uh, once upon a time. That was fun. And now... Indeed. And now uh, he's uh, on the West Coast where they just don't have football right now. Pretty much Collegiately. Collegiately. Are they playing high school football in Oregon right now? No. And the high schools as well. Um, up in the whole West Coast. California, Oregon. I was going to uh, say. Washington. Yeah. Yeah. yeah uh, so, but in the professional realm, you right. can play in California or in uh, Seattle, <laughs> including right now. Right. Right this moment as we record. So, James, I wanted to reflect a little bit back. Well, Brian Yon, because I want, I want to talk a little bit about this past weekend and what college football and what we learned, but also I want, I want to look ahead to this week because this week's really – it's about a couple of big boys. One, the SEC is going to join the fray and finally start playing nationally on Saturday, but we're also going to hear about the Pac-12 and when and whether they're going to join and play in October or November, and for that matter, will all Pac-12 schools be able to join – We'll talk mm-hmm. about that in a minute. But this past weekend, James, it was kind of a – I mean, I hate to say it because football we're dying for right now, but it was pretty dull. Um, we got we got Louisville-Miami, which was the marquee matchup, and that ended up being um, uh, pretty much a blowout. Uh, Miami was up a couple touchdowns throughout that entire game. I don't know if we learned much from that other than, hey, maybe Miami is a top 15 team and deserves to be there while Louisville's defense – is terrible once again. And then I look across the, the other parts of the landscape and I go, well, UCF beat Georgia Tech. That was expected. Um, maybe the most well, exciting. by 28, though. They did they, – I mean, they really well, put it on. Yeah, but Georgia Tech's not good, man. No, I know, but Tech won the week before. Nobody really thought it was going to happen. So, you well, know, Florida, Florida people State's got ahead terrible. of their skis on Georgia Tech, but still. Yeah, sure. Um, so what did you think of the weekend? What stood out to you? Uh I, I got to agree as a whole that, yeah, there really was not a lot of really entertaining marquee brands, but there, that was going to be that way entering the weekend. Like, that wasn't necessarily a surprise. Um, I do think that Oklahoma State really underwhelmed in their opener. Uh, yeah. And frankly, I mean, Tulsa really, quite honestly, Tulsa kind of had them on the ropes for a while there um, until Oklahoma State remembered that they had Tylen Wallace on the field. Uh, that was uh, like, Hey, we have one of the best receivers in college football. We should probably be winning this game by four touchdowns. Uh, that frankly, I mean, that, that game goes a different direction. Uh, you know, in the fourth quarter, <laughs> we're, we're walking away from the weekend saying, ah, is my gunny going to survive, you know, the month of September, uh, the way things were headed. So yeah. that was one to open the day. Uh, I know that it's not, again, we I realize it's a group of five, but Look, Billy Napier's done a heck of a job at Louisiana, uh, at Lafayette so far. And I know it's overtime against Georgia State. And, you know, it's, we're only really even mentioning them because it's week three and, and a lot of the power conferences haven't gotten going. But, I mean, credit to them, man. You know, that's, that's not an easy job. Uh, any of the group of five really is not an easy job. And to be able to have the success that he's had uh, and get off to a start. And I know they're ranked in part because, yes, uh, the Big Ten uh, schools are not presently ranked at the moment. But – Hey, man, that, that means something. You know, that, that doesn't happen yeah. every day at Lafayette. 
Uh, Navy yeah. coming all the way back where Tulane that, had that was fun. That, that was rights. that was fun to watch um, the ending of that. The, the fourth yeah. quarter, sure. Yeah, the game itself was pretty bleak until the, until yeah. Navy did get all the way back as Tulane was up by. Well, so you kind of had the feeling something weird would happen in that game just because it was driving rain and then um, you know with the Navy and the way they play and maybe they got finally warmed things up after you know not tackling the entire yeah. off season. Uh, and actually going in their second game. But um, I, I was surprised a little bit by that result just because I've got so much uh, respect for Tulane and what their coaching staff has done there the last three Same. years. Yeah. Um, and and then late, you know, again, another matchup where, look, Southern Miss has already changed coaches, so how much yeah. do you really make of anything? But I know I'm reading afterward from some of the lines from Skip Holtz about, you know, Louisiana Tech winning that game. You know, they were down some like 20-some-odd players. Yeah, uh, from, from yeah. what I was reading afterwards. So, uh, again, so I think it's just the group of five that some schools that were winning and have managed to win uh, games this past weekend kind of stuck out of some interesting stories or storylines there. But from a overall, like, top thing to take away from the weekend, no question is, the, is that Miami, with the win uh, and the way that De'Ara King looked, uh, and the play calling of Rhett Lashley, who you and I have covered uh, before many years ago. Uh, yeah, that that offense, which was obviously in, largely in disarray uh, before. All right, you don't want to get again ahead of the skis, but that yeah. they put on a show that a Miami team has not shown in several years. Yeah, offensively. It's, it's obvious. You know, I had people saying, hey, uh, you know, yeah, they looks fine and everything, but remember they scored 52 against Louisville last year. And I'm like, well, you watch that game and compare it to this game. It's obvious that Miami looks totally different skill wise, scheme wise, and has improved offensively. This is a much different offense than what we saw last year. And of course, near the end of the year, they just absolutely fell apart offensively, not being able to score a game in the, in the or score in the bowl game against tech, Louisiana tech. So um, I, I think that that scheme matches perfectly one with the quarterback, but more importantly, it works with those three running backs that they have. You know, if you look at the numbers in that game, you know, Cameron Harris had nine carries. That was it. He only touched the ball like 10 times, including that. And big he's touch. a big fella. I mean, I mean he, he ran like a freight train at one point in that one run for 75 yards. I mean, he was, yeah, he, he so was a, I, he's a big guy. That just shows me it was like, you know, we don't have to really do our bread and butter here to beat Louisville. Let's try some different things out with our receivers because Miami's receivers were not all that great in the opener. This game, they weren't great, but they were good. They had like three or four drops um, against Louisville. But, you know, the design, the scheme, and the talent they've got, if they keep continuing to, to come together, I think this is a team that – I'm not saying that uh, they'll contend with Clemson, but Miami very well might be maybe the number two or number three team in the ACC alongside Notre Dame. Probably three behind Notre Dame. Yeah. Notre Dame's offensive line is legit, uh, by the way. That's, that's yeah. one other thing I learned this weekend. And obviously they played South Florida and, and just blew them out. But, man, they've got it all, Notre Dame, it seems like. They seem like a championship-type team this year. They, they definitely have the talent uh, for sure. Now, granted, their first two opponents are not really the way that we're going to gauge whether Notre Dame is going to be a contender this year uh, for a playoff spot or not. But, um, but to stay on Miami for a second, looking at their schedule, obviously, yes, the Florida State game coming up, I, I 
would surmise, especially if Norvell is unable to coach in the game, that you know Miami has a lot of things going for it. After that, yeah, Clemson and Pitt, we're going to learn a lot more the following two games. Uh, and frankly, Virginia, we'll see. You know, they, they haven't opened up yet. Uh, they closed last year okay, uh, but they haven't opened up their season yet. So by the time they get to Virginia, we're going to probably know a little bit more about the Cavaliers. And then, you know, Virginia Tech later in the schedule for them, and they end up with North Carolina. So on one hand, Miami probably goes into several of these games in a better spot than their opponents, other than, like I say, Clemson, certainly. Yeah. But at the same time, you know, could, the, could these be toss-up games? Could these, you know, I don't want to declare that Miami is going to be favored in everything other than the Clemson game. That may or may not be true. But the way that they're going, they might be. I mean, they very well might be. But your, to your point as a whole, though, no, they're probably the third best team in the ACC. And, yeah, Notre Dame is, again, I realize the opponent so far, but they have fared, you know, pretty well. And, again, I'm not going to make much of South Florida, but, yeah, Notre Dame really laid it on, and their their line is legit. Their absolutely. offensive line, man, their tight ends. And I mean, they're they've got it. They've yeah, got they're one. they're a team that let's let's call what it is. The the Notre Dame Clemson game is probably going to decide who gets first place in the ACC, and it may very well decide who gets second place in the ACC because Notre Dame and Miami don't play. Yep. So that that may be the deciding factor, and for, and I don't want to totally look past North Carolina yet. Um, I don't want to put them on that pedestal either. I, I think they're going to play a role in all of this. Uh, exactly how big a role is still to be seen. But they do have important games. The North Carolina's last two games are Notre Dame and Miami, so they're going to play a big factor in November, right. even if they're not in the conversation themselves. Yeah, it's going to be an interesting ACC race. And we entered this week, uh, the SEC finally jumps into the fray. You know, not a lot of great games, but at least we're seeing that. And you're seeing an increase in FBS games. We've got 37 FBS games as of right now, uh, you know, subject to what's happening with COVID-19. 37 FBS games scheduled for this weekend. Um, and the top 25 is going to look a little bit different starting next week when they, the AP starts allowing Big Ten teams back into the fray. The Big Ten, of course, jumping back into action uh, in October, but now they're eligible for the AP poll once again. So teams like Louisiana, which has been in the top 25 for two weeks, uh, not probably going to last very much longer. Um, meanwhile, the reason why I brought you on, Jay, is I want to talk about what's going on in the Pac-12. I know a lot of people have been following it, and listen, it's, it's kind of uh, amazing to me that we're on the precipice of potentially saying, hey, all five Power Five conferences are going to play football this year after the Big Ten and the Pac-12 seem to be in lockstep with, hey, let's not play. And then the Big Ten comes back. The Pac-12 obviously has been wanting to, according to Larry Scott, the commissioner, uh, to kind of make their decisions alongside the Big Ten. But logistically – it's difficult to do in this climate, particularly on the West Coast, where there's a lot of local and state uh, restrictions as far as when it comes to football practices, gatherings, and, of course, what's going on in those campuses out West. Obviously, we've talked a lot nationally about a lot of schools are doing virtual instruction. Some are doing a mix of, of both. But on the West Coast, it's a little bit different from what we're seeing in the Big Ten. A lot of those teams were practicing – those football teams were practicing. So the idea of getting to back to a season playing by late October isn't as far uh, and outstretched than, say, out in the Pac-12 country because a lot of players have not been on campuses or practicing for that matter 
because of what's been going on out there. I guess kind of set the scene for us and what this week looks like in the Pac-12, where on Thursday, it appears, and maybe earlier, we will have a decision coming from the Pac-12 CEO group of whether to start up fall sports, including football, and whether we might see all Pac-12 schools do it, maybe just a few of them join the fray, and potentially uh, do it as early as Halloween weekend, but a lot standing in the way still, a lot of red tape to go through, James. Yeah, so let's, let's start from the uh, kind of regulatory standpoint of where things are at and, and how, we've, uh, how we've gotten here has kind of been uh, written about rather extensively over the last week uh, by myself and others, certainly John Wilner uh, of the Mercury News also rather extensively as well. Um, but essentially now that you know, we, we started Wednesday where the Big Ten and the Pac-12 were both not playing in the fall. Uh, but with the expectation that the Big Ten would be making its announcement after many days of waiting on uh, what their presidents and chances are going to say. And early in the morning, particularly out here on the West Coast, really early in the morning, the Big Ten makes that move, and the day begins as the Pac-12 is the only Power Five conference and uh, not playing. They're on the outside looking in. And two states, California and Oregon, and numerous counties, uh, Los Angeles, and then uh, the Bay Area counties for Cal and Stanford and the counties here in Oregon uh, for Lane and Benton County, uh, where Oregon and Oregon State are, are all seemingly standing in the way uh, due to local health guidelines uh, due to COVID and restrictions on uh, what can and can't be done with contact sports specifically or football specifically. And by the time the day is over, California as a state, is out of the way from a uh, department of health standpoint and they're creating exemptions and uh, tweaking some of their rules. Los Angeles County is out of the way for UCLA and USC and we start to hear some rumblings uh, from Oregon as well. The Oregon health authority and the governor's office also uh, granting an exemption for the ducks and the beavers athletics. So pending additional protocols from the Pac-12, et cetera, et cetera. But bottom line is the day started in two states and five counties impacting six schools. And by the end of the day, two states and uh, a major county are out of the way. And then by the end of the week, uh, the two counties on the ground here, again, for Oregon and Oregon State, where they're situated, are also signing off on their plans and protocols. So all that's left from a regulatory standpoint is the Bay Area, and based on the reporting of, like I mentioned, John Wilner and others, it sounds like Stanford basically just has to submit a proposal uh, for its protocols to uh, Santa Clara County and California. And for the city of Berkeley and Cal uh, and their health department, also, you know, again, I, from my understanding, there's been some talks there, but where things are at and how soon uh, remains to be seen. But to the point of, yes, there, there'll be a vote from the presidents and chancellors in the Pac-12 on Thursday. Could it be sooner? Yeah, it certainly could be. Uh, I think that what some of these presidents and chancellors have underestimated over the course of this has been the impact of sport coming back across the country, particularly on the collegiate level. Uh, when the pro sports are back, the pro sports are already back, but they're in the bubble situations. And then the NFL comes back, but hey, they're professionals and they're being tested every day. When you make deals to then have daily testing, which is great and is doing right by the players, then fans and the public at large is asking, well, then why aren't you playing? 
if you had the same thing or able to do the same thing and claim they could be even better than what the NFL is doing mm -hmm. at the moment, then again, why aren't you playing? What was, what was in the way before is no longer in the way, so what's the problem? Uh, and especially on football Saturdays, when you're watching around the rest of the country, including in some areas that have had fans, and then you're seeing the Pac-12 as the lone power conference, uh, not even to commit to playing, yeah. And then you get reports Saturday morning from uh, Bruce Feldman, as, uh, particularly, that the Mountain West is talking about playing on the 24th and within a couple of minutes of October, that is. And, and with a couple of minutes, I was able to confirm that myself, that they're aiming for the 24th. And I was told the vast majority of the league's coaches are in favor of a four-week preseason. Now you're in the footprint. Now you're talking about schools in the Mountain West. You're talking about Boise State. They ain't yeah. far from Washington State. Utah State, they're not far from the University of Utah. You know, Fresno State, San Diego State, the, the, the California University schools, the University of California system, the UCLA and, uh, and Cal Berkeley, you know, they're supposed to be the ones who look down right. at the California State University system. And meanwhile, their peers who they feel, you know, holier than thou about yep. are blowing past them. So right now, I, I think there's a chance that they could vote earlier. Could, I say, I don't know about will, but could, because frankly, I think they're going to be embarrassed into it as a league. I think their presidents and chancellors specifically are going to be embarrassed into it because they've bungled this. You know, how much falls on Larry Scott or not, time is going to tell. But ultimately, he is at the mercy of and the behest of the presidents and chancellors of his conference. Uh, and in reading accounts of, and again, trying to hear and piece some things together myself, of what's going on behind the scenes, you know, this is not the time for some certain philosophical discussions that seemingly are getting in the way for some folks. Uh, the, the question of the day was, how do you get back to play your business and your job at the moment in terms of from the athletics perspective is to figure out a way to play or not if it's impossible then it's impossible but right now everybody else is trying to figure out a way to play and has done it or is trying to figure out a way to do it and i'm not saying you're not figuring out a way you're trying but what basically the holdup is in the president's and chancellor's hands not larry scott's hands at the moment at the moment the college football daily will be right back I think there's a little bit of a misunderstanding, and I think a lot, maybe a lot more of the uh, casual fans have learned this over the last month or so that, you know, commissioners do not make these decisions. It's the presidents and chancellors. And obviously, it's been a learning process for casual fans as they've watched what's happened in the Big Ten as they reverse their decision. Um, and, but the same is going on in the Pac 12. But you're, as, you're say, as you're saying, you're dealing with presidents and chancellors that kind of look down on the idea of, of football and athletics anyway. Um, just from their, their basic core. And now they're being asked, hey, looks like we can um, start this thing back up. Let's see if we could do it. Uh, when can we do it? Now, the, the logistics of it, we talked about the, uh, you know, the, the restrictions and stuff of certain areas and how those are starting to be lifted and being, being worked with, with these other governments. But, for example, Oregon, um, where, you know, a lot of people think they could repeat as Pac-12 champions. Have players been on campus working out? Would they be ready to start practicing, say, this Friday or Saturday if uh, Mario Cristobal said, hey, guys, let's start practicing? Yeah, so to get to the, uh, yeah, to the academic calendar component to it, uh, as you outlined there. So that is a big difference between uh, the schools in the Pac-12 as a whole, but specific schools – uh, Oregon, Oregon State, Washington, uh, and I'm going to forget one or two others who are on the quarter system. Uh, but they're not on semesters. Right. So 
whereas uh, even the SEC, where they haven't started playing yet, they will this week coming up. Uh, but they've pretty much across the board. They've yeah, they've they're all enrolled. They're all been on campus. They've been on campus for a month. going on a month now, or a month and a half, or almost two months in some places. Uh, that's not the case for multiple schools in the Pac-12 who are on the quarter system. And when they pulled the plug uh, on August 11th, by the end of that week, most everybody had cut their players loose and said, all right, well, we'll reconvene, but if we're not practicing for a particular season right now and we're limited for in terms of what we are even able to do from a practice Correct. standpoint – um, both from government regulation and by the league's call, because while there was, you know, a path that they were all going to to lead to the beginning of practice the following week, because of the government uh, regulations that were in place in some parts of the league, not all, but in some, the league did not want to give the green light to those who could start because of the parts of the league that could not. So, all right, they make the move they do. And like I say, players are cut loose at that point. Uh, and frankly, some coaches also left the various towns that they were in, either for a short period of time or a longer period of time. So if they have family in other parts of the country or something that they, you know, they bounced around too. So right now, Oregon's players have come back. They were due back as recording this today here on Sunday, the 20th. Yeah. They have all been coming back over the course of today. Uh, and now there's a quarantine process again and a retesting process again, because the university of Oregon's fall quarter doesn't begin until September 29th. Mm-hmm. And that's not because of COVID. That's, that's their it's academic normal. calendar under normal circumstances. So ordinarily they would have been here in a fall camp in August and uh, throughout September. And then they wouldn't start class until the end of September. Anyway, uh, same thing for the university of Washington, their fall quarter doesn't start until September 30th. Uh, Oregon state starts a couple you know, about a week earlier on the 23rd. But point is, is these are schools that they basically let their players go for a while so the whole idea of well why are they talking about six weeks of lead up well some coaches are not everybody feels it would require six weeks and they may be able to shave a week or two off of that but part of their concern compared to the big 10 logistically is getting the players back going through isolation and and quarantine going through retesting and also getting an assessment of what did these guys do over the last four or five weeks in terms of keeping themselves in shape. And that's not a fault of the players. The players, along with all of us, were told, hey, you know, this is what uh, we'll see in January uh, in terms of games. So you can't really fault them if they did not stay in game shape uh, over the last four or five weeks necessarily. So some of that assessment is going to be sorted out and done on the ground. So how soon could they start practice at the Pac-12 presidents even vote on Thursday? How quick thereafter? I have no idea if it would be as soon as Saturday, uh, particularly yeah. with the two counties in the Bay Area who are in the way at the moment. That's, that's the be? big issue right now for yeah. people. The, the Bay Area right now, that's kind of the one area, where, at least logistically, government, with the government, we're still hold up. And the schools are in touch with them, to be clear. It's not sure. as though like, there's a complete wall that's impossible right. to penetrate. But the other still side of it is, it. yeah, they're working on it. It's not done yet. And... Stanford has to bring the proposal to Santa Clara County and we got to see what Cal does with the city of Berkeley and their health department as well. Uh, But if Stanford and their president are having a philosophical discussion Mm -hmm. uh, about amateurism, right? Well, you know, then, then that's a different discussion entirely. 
you know, if you wanted to have that discussion, the time to have that discussion would have been in April, in yeah. May, in June, in July. If you really had a principled amateurism position, you would have had that discussion before they even came back for voluntary workouts. Right. But now all of a sudden to slam the brakes and say, wait a minute, amateurism. <laughs> and now, like you said, they try to be very much tied to the Big Ten from a timing standpoint and logistics standpoint, not only because of the Rose Bowl in the postseason, but because a lot of these presidents and chancellors, particularly in the Pac-12, across athletics, across uh, acad academia as a whole, but particularly in the Pac-12 athletics and academia, these are presidents and chancellors who are unabashed in the fact that they are proud to say they are science-based academics. Mm -hmm. These are people who pound their chest that nine of the 12 schools in the Pac-12 are AAU schools. And when we say AAU, we don't mean AAU club <laughs> basketball AAU. We don't mean the Amateur Athletic Union. We mean the Association of American Universities. And they are really debonair about it. They have their pinkies in the air about it. And they hold that over some parts of the SEC and the Big 12 and the ACC who are SACS accredited schools compared to AAU schools. Because the Big Ten historically was 100% AAU schools and then Nebraska was, but then it wasn't when it came in and whatever, whatever. But the Pac-12 is 9 out of 12 with Oregon State, Washington State, and Arizona State being the three that are not. Right. Well, as it stands, as of right now and until Thursday where they, or, or sooner if they vote until then, right now <laughs> they would be the only AAU schools with FBS football not playing or if they agree to play, to play on either Halloween to open the season or November, which would be significantly less games than even the Big Ten or perhaps even the Mountain West. Yeah. Other than Buffalo in the MAC, and they in the MAC, who I mean, earlier in the week it was, no, yeah. I was not going to play. And the next day they came out and were like, well, we might actually turn around and play. That's it. So they got to make a choice. If they fancy themselves like the Ivy League, and I don't mean just Stanford, I mean as a whole, as a as group a whole, of presidents right. and chancellors, well, then they can make that choice, but then they are absolutely cutting off their nose to spite their face when it comes to athletics because, listen, this choice was already made for you because otherwise they're running the risk of being like the former University of Chicago president 100 years ago, Robert Maynard Hutchins, who disbanded football and said, sorry, the academic mission – of this university and big time college athletics in the big 10 don't work together. Well, that's a philosophical position and nobody's ever talked about the university of Chicago and athletics ever since. <laughs> um, so, you know, that's okay. But if you want to have a hundred million dollar athletic department, if you want to have a television network that generates money and we know insert well, joke here about the PAC 12 network, yeah. uh, if you want to do those things, then you have to figure out that balance. You don't create more barriers to entry to your own processes. So, James, all right, real, real quick here, we're wrapping up the podcast, but how have fans been dealing with this on the West Coast? Because the, the, the rest of the country, they kind of look at the West Coast like, ah, their fans probably don't care as much about football. But you got the big-time schools like Oregon, USC, um, where obviously there's huge fan bases, alumni bases. But how have they been approaching all of this over these last two months? So it's been in different spurts based on kind of the, the winds of the day of what the development was. So on August 11th, because the Pac-12 was more transparent at the time, certainly compared to the Big Ten, um, and then we know what happened there, uh, in terms of releasing the report and saying, 
we're making this choice because look, look at what our medical experts are saying and look at the concerns that we have. And again, you could disagree. You could say maybe they could have delayed a little while before eventually reaching that decision, explore every which contingency before pulling the plug for declaring for four plus months, almost five plus months at that point. And those are all fine positions, but they gave you an explanation. Now, and then in my reporting this past week, I was able to uncover that some of the data that went into it, you know, each president and chancellor would have to answer for how much or why or how much they were influenced by it. But some of the data in terms of the level of prevalence of COVID in the various communities of their schools was overstated during the presentation to the presidents and chancellors, some of it inexplicably, uh, but that's neither here nor there at this point. How do the fans react to it? At first, they had an explanation. Even if they didn't like it, they had an explanation. And there was still almost like a, well, there's no fight in City Hall on this kind of position compared to the Big Ten where they were fighting because, again, the states weren't in the way and there wasn't that transparency. Now, over the last month, as games have been played across the country, as people have gotten more data, as other reports have come out to say some of the data they saw in the first place wasn't right, right. <laughs> as uh, you know, additional studies have been done on myocarditis, and now as governments are getting out of the way, thanks to daily testing availability and the like, now over the last 72 hours in particular, I've heard from many Oregon fans and other Pac-12 fans who are incensed. They're, incent they're angry at everybody. They're always angry at Larry Scott. He can do no right. I mean, <laughs> yeah. They, they, you know, he can absolutely do no right. Uh, and some of it, he absolutely deserves blame for him. Some of it, he doesn't. So, yeah, uh, they don't even know who to blame in the presidents and chancellors because they, they don't know those people's names. And that's that's OK. Um, and the presidents don't. don't know the names of maybe some of their head coaches. <laughs> no, oh, they, absolutely. They couldn't name a starting quarterback. There is no way. I mean, not a chance. Zero. Zero. I would love. I mean, not, anyway, we, we could go down a tangent there for forever. Um, so the fans don't even know who to blame other than they just pin it on Larry Scott entirely or the system or the conference or whatever the case may be. Um, they're, they're angry there. They are really angry, though, after Friday's decision not to vote because they're going, look, if everything's getting in line, why can't we just commit to saying we're going to play? And then hearing that the Big Ten is going to play on October 23rd and 24th and that maybe the Mountain West could blow past them. Right. Yeah, now people, it went from August 11th, all right, we don't like it, but we kind of understand it. And then as the Big Ten got angry and angrier, kind of like, all right, I don't know. Are we doing the right thing? What's exactly happening here? To obviously over the, the course of the last three, four days, it's been, all right, why aren't we doing it? When are we doing it? How fast can we do it? And then, all right, they're voting. We may be able to get in line with them after all to, wait a minute, why are we waiting another six days to do what? What? What is happening here? Why? Where is the urgency? What is going on? And of course, again, blame it on Larry, blame it on whoever. And I'm going to say it again, that he doesn't deserve any of it. Point is, they're angry. They're angry at everybody. Um, <laughs> other than the players, they're angry at everybody. They want to see their teams get going. And no, I don't think it's reckless or with disregard for uh, player safety or anything of that sort. It's they're seeing everybody else around the country commit to playing or are playing. And they want to see their schools do it too, because yeah. they want to see themselves have the, the chance to compete for a championship. If you're an Oregon fan in particular, or for bowl opportunities uh, and also for recruiting and other impacts and, and general morale. I had, I had uh, somebody actually speak to me rather at length in terms of from a morale standpoint, not propaganda, not politics, truly to the morale of the public, that having these schools play means something.
And it does. I mean, it absolutely does. Not to be a distraction. We're not going in the political route. Just it means something. Right. Particularly when they're on the outside looking in, that's not going over well. And does it have political implications? Of course it does. But he was the person who was speaking to me was not speaking from a political standpoint. He's just saying it means something to people if their school is or isn't playing when other people well, are. That, that's the thing. It's like you've got, you've got the two time zones out west. We haven't seen football out there. Um, the college BYU football. is about to host Troy, though. So yeah, <laughs> we, may, we might very well Maybe. in a week. <laughs> Maybe. 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 Um, but it's certainly interesting on the West Coast. Uh, James, thanks for joining us. It's going to be a big week. Of course, the SEC rejoining actions. I mentioned earlier, 37 FBS games going on, but you're probably going to be hearing from the Pac-12 on decision to move forward with the football season. Is it going to be all the schools? We'll see. And also the MAC and the MWC, Mountain West, potentially making decisions this week as well. It never slows down, and certainly it's full speed ahead with a lot of these conferences trying to get some sort of football season in. It's almost like they've, you know, last minute, let's do this. But obviously there's been some advances and daily testing. James, thanks for joining us. And everybody, thanks for listening to College Football Daily. Make sure to give us a five-star review. We really appreciate it. Until next time, I'm Brendan Marcello. We'll see you down the road.